the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's a minute before 3 o'clock. Southern California Live on KKLA. Thursday afternoon, I'm Bob Lapine. Beautiful afternoon. I mean, given what's gone on the last... Has it been crazy this week, huh? With the near record, the beautiful weather. Then, did you get ice or snow or hail or any of that over the last couple days? And now... Nice day, and it looks like a nice weekend ahead. Well, you know, what they say, if you don't like the weather in Southern California, wait, it's going to change pretty quickly anyway. We're glad you're along on a Thursday afternoon. There is a, um, there's an app. Do you, have, do you have Alexa at your house? We have Alexa at our house, and there's an app on Alexa on the Amazon thing where uh, there's a, a game called Song Quiz. And you can go into, uh, you just say, uh, Alexa, play Song Quiz. And if I just triggered that at your house, you can shut her down. But um, if you do that, she'll come on and say how many people are playing, and then she'll say what what uh, decade do you want to play? And because I am of a certain age, I say I want to play the '60s because that's that's when I grew up musically was in the '60s with the Beatles and with everything that was going on with with what was going on in in. Um, down near the Sunset Strip, Laurel Canyon, all of that. That's, I mean, I that's what I cut my teeth on was '60s, early '70s, rock and roll music. So anyway, you you play this game. They play snippets of songs. You're playing against somebody. If you're if it's just you, you play against somebody, and they play a snippet of a song. You have to name the song and the the song title and the artist. You get extra points if you get the artist. Um, I am currently. On an 84-game win streak on song quiz in the 60s. So I'm, I guess I am bragging. I was going to say I'm not bragging, but I, I, I am bragging. I'm, I'm pretty good at this. This, this is my, this is my lane. Okay. And if it's, if you grew up in the same time that I grew up, you grew up listening to pop music in the 60s and the 70s, rock and roll in the 60s and the 70s. There are certain songs that. If they come up on song quiz, everybody knows them. If you if you don't know Barbara Ann by the Beach Boys, you have no business playing song quiz, right? If you can't pick out uh, the Beatles doing "I Want to Hold Your Hold Your Hand," this is not the game for you. And if this so, if this song comes up, listen to this song and see. You should if you know this song, you're in the same groove with me. See if you know this one. It may be quite simple, but now that it's done. All right, you know that, right? That's Elton. That's your song. 1970 was the first time we heard from Elton on this side of the pond. First time he came out, and we everybody went, "Whoa." Let's hear more, and then we started to hear more in the '70s. I mean, Elton John. If if you had to say who ruled the '70s, it was Elton John, right? 
and I, I think you all know Elton is coming to uh, Southern California next fall. He's on his farewell tour through through the the world. He's coming to here in the fall. Uh, and here's the thing you may not know. We might not know who Elton is if somebody hadn't heard him first. And the somebody I'm thinking about is a guy who is today the elder for worship at Church on the Way in Van Nuys and who is a a, a music missionary, Caleb Quay, uh, who was there at the beginning when Reg Dwight, that's Elton, went into the studio in England uh, after hours without anybody knowing to, to cut his first demo and the guy who was in the studio there behind the board helping produce it was Caleb Quay, who went on then for a decade on and off to play in Elton's band in the studio on the road with him, has gone on to play on other records, other bands, on tour, and and today is at Church on the Way, which is quite a story in and of itself. And there is a... Uh, there's. There's actually a book out that tells Caleb's story. Caleb wrote his story uh, a few years back, and now there is a documentary in the works to tell Caleb's story and to really capture the history of not just Elton and his life, but Caleb and his life and what God has done in Caleb's life, Uh, a new documentary that is in the works. And we have with us this afternoon— both the uh, guitar player who was there at the beginning and the executive producer of the film uh, that is in the works. So let me introduce them to you. First of all, Caleb Quay is on the line with us from Van Nuys. Caleb, welcome to Southern California Live. Hi, Bob. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Really well, this is a, it's a delight. Great to be able to talk to you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, let me also introduce Valerie Tucker, who is with us, who has an extensive background in in TV and film and is the executive producer around the uh, Louder Than Rock. That's the name of the documentary that tells Caleb's story and really tells a, a unique piece of rock and roll history. Valerie, welcome. Hi, Bob. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, we're delighted to, yeah, we're delighted to have both of you on this afternoon and get a chance to kind of revisit what has uh, what's been a part of life for so many of us and uh, a part of musical history. And uh, Caleb, let, let let me go back. Tell everybody how you met. He he wasn't Elton John at the time. He was Reggie Dwight. How did you meet <laughs> Reg? <laughs> yeah. Well, I had dropped out of school when I was fifteen and headed straight for the music industry. And uh, I'd gotten a job as, um, uh, what did they call it? Delivering sheet music to music publishing companies in Denmark Street, which was England's Tin Pan Alley. It was the heart of the music industry back then. And uh, so I would have to go down Tin Pan Alley and visit the various music publishers. And at this one particular place called Mills Music, I went in there and I met this young chap who was about the same age as me, just a year older, uh, whose name was Reg Dwight. And that's where we actually met in 1965. And, um, you know, we, we met and he was real nice, made me a cup of tea. And, and I would meet him, you know, we would meet up quite frequently and found that we had a common interest in music. You and guys, then about, you, you, yeah. 
you guys, I mean, the guys who are, you're working as as a gopher in the music industry, basically. You're running sheet music yeah. across town. Mm-hmm. But everybody who's there Absolutely. has a secret dream to want to be a player, to want to be behind the microphone or behind the board or be a part of making yeah. the music, right? Sure, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I had grown up in a music family. My father was a famous musician back in his day and was doing TV and radio and stuff. And so I grew up around musicians and a lot of music uh, from the jazz era. And so that's all I wanted to do, what my father was doing. I just wanted to be a musician. And... And, well, I, I, I was just—I was going to step in here because your relationship with your father was a rocky relationship, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. He he split. He abandoned us when I was twelve, and he was a you know a very uptight alcoholic and everything. So there was all of that stuff going on. It was basically hell at home while he was around. But you know, back in those days, most young kids, young boys, I should say. We wanted to be in some way like our fathers, you know. So, you know, my father was uh, my first music mentor, if you like. He taught me to play the piano when I was four years old and drums when I was seven. So it was music, music, music all the time. And, and, were, you, um, and were, you a, were you a prodigy? Was this just, did it come natural to you? I guess, yes. I mean, a lot of people have said that. Um, uh, and in fact, my mother, she, and it's in the movie actually, she says that uh, she noticed that um, I used to listen, I used to hear music different to the other children of my age at the time. So, it, yeah, I just, you know, I just gravitated toward it. And um, and it became, you know, during during the times of upheaval in our house, uh, it became my my comfort blanket, my sanity, you know, my refuge. You know, when Dad was flying off the handle, I'd just go and play the piano or something. <laughs> and, you know, and did, so that was it. So, did did you in in uh, in this environment were you could you hear a song and just sit down with a guitar or a piano and and pound it out immediately? Yeah, yeah. So it was pretty yeah. instinctive for you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. so when you I meet Red, to, I, no, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say later on I had some some formal training, but I picked it up. It, you know, my ears were Pretty. the main thing. So when you met you know, Reg down at, at Mills mm-hmm. Music, and he makes you a cup of tea, yeah. and you're talking, and he says that he's a piano player, and you say I I play piano and guitar, and did you guys say, well, let's get yeah. together and and play sometime? Well, you know, it was funny. We met for a while. And then I got this, I was fortunate enough to get this job in Dick James Music. Now, Dick James Music at the time was the Beatles music publishing company. So this is in 1965. The Beatles are the biggest thing on the planet. And Dick James Music is the top music publishing company in the world at that time. Everybody wanted to, it was gravitating to that place. Everybody wanted to get their songs you know, demoed and, and hopefully get signed as a songwriter, etc. And so a friend of mine in another publishing company had said, you know, there's, a, there's an opportunity. Dick James is looking for an office boy. I was in the middle of my rounds. Dick James is looking for an office boy. Um, I said, really? Okay. So I ran around there <laughs> and I applied for the job. I applied for the job. I was supposed to report back to you know, my, my, my employer, 
But I just went round over there. I said, I hear you're looking for an office boy. I said, I'm your man, you know. And so they gave me an interview with Dick. And Dick, as it happened, knew my father. Hmm. And so uh, he gave me the job straight away. So I just went back to my old place. I said, I'm done. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm going over to Dick J's music, you know. It was just an amazing opportunity it opened up for which I'm, I'm to this day very, very grateful for because Dick was in the process of expanding his company into a, a record label and having his own recording studio there. So which is what he did, and I, got to, I was like hanging around a recording studio and, um, you know, asking all kind of questions and helping out on sessions and stuff, you know. And his son, Stephen, was running the, running the studio at the time. But we all knew that Stephen wasn't going to be continuing to do that because he was being trained to eventually take over the entire company, you know, uh, take his father's place, you know. So they saw that I had talent and everything. And so at age 16 they handed the studio over to me to run the studio. Wow. Now, while that was going on, Reg Dwight had left Mills Music and he'd formed a band called Bluesology and was touring around the country uh, with this band, Bluesology. And uh, one day, a man by the name of Ray Williams, who was an A&R guy from uh, Liberty Records, he showed up at Dick James with Reg Dwight in tow to record, uh, to do a demo. You know, it was his audition demo for the company. And so he brings him in, and I'm setting up the mics and everything. And uh, it was interesting because at that point, we hadn't seen each other for about six months. And then I look at Reg, and his hair's grown longer. He's lost a bit of weight. You know, he's looking a bit more hip. And then I suddenly realized, wait a minute, don't I know you? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's Reg, you know, from Will's Music, you know. And he was getting all embarrassed because I used to laugh at him, make fun of him and stuff. (laughs) And um, so we did this demo and we decided that the music was nice, but he needed a lyricist. So Ray Williams put an ad in the music paper, the New Musical Express, saying, uh, you know, asking for a lyricist to come team up with with this musician for a songwriting team, songwriting partnership. And that's when Bernie Torpin responded to that ad, you know, and then so they, they began their partnership. So as it goes on, <clears throat> I, I got them signed to the company, and then we, went, went, we uh, started recording, you know, some legit uh, uh, recordings, and we, we were set to release a single, and I'm leaving out a lot here just for the sake of time. But uh, we had to we, we were at a single ready to be released. It's called I've Been Loving You. That was his very first single. But we knew that we needed to change the name of the artist because we figured Reg Dwight is just not really hip enough. He's just not <laughs> going to cut it, you know. Right. So uh, we had we had flown ba- flown down from Scotland. By this time, I'm working at Dick James Music, and I'm also playing in Bluesology because their guitar player had quit. So Reg just said to me, "Why don't you come join the band? Let's do these gigs, and we can still be working on our project while we're out there on the road." Okay, great. So we fly back to to London from Scotland, and we're in this airport shuttle bus, and we're sweating about 
how, what name are we going to use instead of Reg Dwight, you know? And so he'd got his notepad and he's writing down these names and he says, well, look, he says, you know, I like Elton's name. Now, there was a guy in our band who was a saxophone player. His name was Elton Dean. And so it's Elton Dean. He says, I like Elton's name. And he says, I like John. John Baldry is who we were back in. He was the lead singer, Long John Baldry. He says, I like Elton's name. I like John's name. He says, what do you think about this? And he'd written down John Elton. And I looked at it and I said, I don't think so. How about Elton John? He said, okay, we'll go with that. And the rest, as they say, is history. history. That's right. We're talking to Caleb Quay, who is uh, on staff. He's on staff at the Church of the Way in Van Nuys uh, and was there at the beginning when uh, when Reg Droit became Elton John at his suggestion. Uh, You were working and and listening to a lot of artists, a lot of music at the time. Did you know there is something special about Elton? You know, I knew that, yeah, I knew that we had something different. We knew we had something different. We knew it was quality. We had no idea as to how big it was going to get. We had no idea. We just knew it was different, and it was quality. It just didn't sound like anybody else where a lot of other, you know, people, would they were trying to copy the Beatles or the Stones or whoever. This was different. It was I am different, I, and it was quality. I'm guessing, Caleb, that tough home life. You drop out of school. You're in the music business. Uh, things are pretty fast mm-hmm. in the music business. I'm I'm just guessing it was. Uh, was there anything happening in your life spiritually at the time? Actually, no. Well, no, not in terms of Christianity. I I used to go to church. You know, when I was a kid, I dropped out when I was. Uh, I left the church when I was 15, shortly before I dropped out of school, because it, it was over the issue of baptism. Now, this is the Church of England, mm-hmm. and um, they used to do, so it was kind of like, um, in order to be baptized, they would do infant baptism. Right. right. And one day I was singing in the church choir, and I saw some uh, uh, some people, some friends of mine in the church, were coming forward for um, confirmation, like, similar to like the Catholic Church, they come forward for confirmation. So in order to be confirmed, you'd have to go through catechism class and stuff like that. But in order to even reach that point, you have to have been baptized as an infant. And I didn't know if I'd been baptized or not. So one day I went home and asked my mother, I said, Mom, I said, have I, been, have I ever, was I ever baptized? And she just looked to the ground, you know, just looked crestfallen. Mm. And she said to me, no. She says, your father never had time. Because mm. back in those days, it would be the father that would kind of initiate the whole thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And she said, your father never had time. Because my dad was always on the road doing something. Right. And he wasn't really involved, in, you know, in church. They sent me to church to keep me out of trouble. <laughs> and so at that point, it was like, oh, my goodness me. Here I am, head choir boy in the church, and in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm a hypocrite. I don't qualify. I've not even been baptized. I need to get out of here. So, and of course, that's where the enemy was working in a 15-year-old and said, right, head for the music business, (laughs) which is what I did. And I'm guessing that in the music business, people were saying, try a little of this, Uh, smoke a little of this, put a little of this up your nose. Yeah. 
Yeah, the first person that did that to me was Mick Jagger. Really? Yeah, Mick Jagger. I was working on a recording project with him. And, um, yeah, back in 1966. And that's exactly what happened. You need to smoke some of this. And that's when I, that's when the drug thing started. And, and I'm, I'm also, I mean, we, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, uh, interesting thing about the baptism story. And here's where, here's to me, the amazing grace of God. Because after the incident with Mick Jagger, I got hooked on drugs for the next 18 years of my life. Wow. When I got saved and I got baptized on Pentecost Sunday 40 years ago now this year, I was instantly delivered in the waters of baptism, instantly mm. delivered from all of those drugs, the hatred toward my father, all of it, a radical deliverance when I got baptized. I want to jump to that, but we've got to take a time out. We're talking with Caleb sure. Quay, who uh, was there at the beginning of Elton John's career back in the back in the sixties when when everything that was happening musically was happening out of out of London, out of Great Britain. There's a new movie that is being produced called Louder Than Rock that tells Caleb's story. It's a a documentary, and we'll hear more about that and hear more about Caleb's story and and how he got from. Uh, playing guitar with Elton to the waters of baptism uh, a, a decade later as as we continue this afternoon. Your Thursday edition of Southern California Live continues in a minute. Southern California Live on KKLA on a Thursday afternoon. That's Elton John, a song called Where To Now, St. Peter, from the Tumbleweed Connection LP. And that little wah-wah guitar you heard there, that was you, Caleb, right? Yes, sir. (laughs) Caleb Quay, who's joining us this afternoon, uh, as we've been hearing the story there at the beginning, you were were in the recording session for What an interesting song. I mean, I, I remember, so, okay, I'm... I'm uh, at this point uh, in high school, and I'm going to Young Life Club, and I'm hearing about Jesus, and I'm listening to James Taylor sing, Won't You Look Down Upon Me, Jesus, you got to help me make a stand. And I'm listening yeah. to Elton sing, uh, I may not be a Christian, but I've done all one man. I'm, I'm looking for little spiritual nuggets in yeah. the pop music that I'm listening to. Do you, do you remember, mm. I mean, uh, to hear a song like that now and think, what was Bernie thinking when he wrote that lyric? <laughs> yeah, it, that's a very interesting question. I do remember that we were conscious of, even though we didn't know what it was about, but the Jesus movement was going on mm-hmm. back then in in America. You know, and we were very um, fascinated and interested in American culture. Um, you know, we were hippie musicians basically coming through that whole thing. So, you know, we, we were searching, but, um, and, and so I think like in, you know, songwriters like James Taylor and Elton, they would kind of latch on to certain concepts without really knowing what, what that was, mm-hmm. you know, and just using it, uh, taking poetic license with it, you know. You know, the, um, I'm thinking of Augustine who says the heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And and I think everybody yeah, is, is yeah. asking those questions, whether they know the answers or not, yeah. right? 
That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So uh, that's the best thing I can think of. You know what, Bob? I, I, excuse me, but I need to. I just want to make a little correction in, in your announcement. You've mentioned that um, the worship pastor or something at church on the way. I I used to be just before COVID. I was transferred to a church, a lovely church in Pomona, which okay. is where I'm at now. It's called New Life Pomona. It's a beautiful church, and that's where I'm now. And I, I just felt convicted because I know some of the folks are listening to this this broadcast. You know, they'd be thinking, "What's going on here?" So, just to clarify, I, I am currently at New Life. Uh, church in Pomona. In Pomona. Thanks. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah. Appreciate it. So no uh, I'm, when the movie uh, Rocket Man came out a couple of years ago, I'm, I'm sure you were curious oh, yeah. to see what that was, what that portrayal would look like. How, how close <laughs> did, the, did that resonate? Did, that, did you go, yeah, that's pretty much what it was like? Or was there a lot of license taken there? Oh, there was a lot of license taken there. It was very historically inaccurate. Hmm. Uh, in a lot of ways. And, you know, it was funny. You know, I went with my wife because I thought, well, I'm going to have to go see this movie because people are going to be asking me questions, you know, and uh, which they sure enough have, you know. Yeah. So I'm sitting there with my wife and I'm just like kind of starting to lose it. And she's like for an hour and a half, she's just nudging me in the ribs <laughs> saying, just hold it together. So I'm going, that didn't happen. That's not right. <laughs> I'm pulling out all these things, you know. So, yeah, I don't know what kind of fantasy they were trying to do, do there, but uh, it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's not accurate. Tell me about Elton's, Elton's sexuality. When, when were you aware of uh, his sexual orientation, and, and how did that get handled uh, with the band, with the music company, with all of that? Well, I knew about it. I mean, we were aware back in the early 70s, you know, um, late 60s, actually, we were aware of it um, back when I was, you know, playing with him in Bluesology. Mm -hmm. But back then, it was everything was very compartmentalized, you know. And, of course, not being not being a Christian or anything, you know, there, there was no sense of you know, well, this is right or this is wrong. It was just like, well, that's what it is. That's what you want to do. Fine. Just don't include me in on it, you know. Right. So it was a case, as things progressed, it was a case of, you know, them and us, you know. So when it got into the 70s, and especially uh, when he got really big, so like when I was touring with him in, you know, 75 and 76, it was like really, really, it was stadiums every day, private jet you know and the entourage he had this entourage around him you know and it was it and the band was huddled over here on one side and the entourage is on the other side so it was basically a case of them and us you know but it all blew up when the in 76 he gave an interview with rolling stone and that's when he was the first rock star to come out right and and for and that just, 1976, that's that's earth shattering. Although, uh, for whatever yeah. reason, it didn't seem to affect his popularity or his position. He is still Sir Elton John, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, he hadn't been knighted there, but he was still still big, you know. And he took some time off, you know. That's when he dissolved the band that I was in after an album called Blue Moves, mm-hmm. and. Um, 
uh, you know, and he, he went through his drug rehab thing. So he had a lot of internal sorting out to do. And um, and during that time, I went on and played with Hall and Oates. So I was still rocking and rolling myself. But that's really about the most I can say on that. That's a, that's a road he just decided to just go down that road for all mm-hmm. it was worth. You know, that's where he felt felt at home, you know. Am I so right it's that... Been, yeah. No, go ahead. I would say it's been something of a point of separation between us in terms of communication because now he knows he knows I'm a full-blown Christian and um, I can't, you know, what's the, what's the phrase, you know, we love the person, you know, can't condone what the yeah. Bible says is sin. Right. So I'm wondering, uh, I'm wondering about inner band tension. I've, I've read a lot about bands in the, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the Eagles. I'm thinking about Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and the fact that these bands could barely stay together for two years at a time. You were with Elton off and on for 10 years. Was there a lot of inner band tension yeah. that you experienced? Actually, no. During my time with him, we were all friends because I say we knew each other as teenagers, you know. Um, and that might, that might be one of the things where there is a wall of separation between us because I think deep down inside, I'm most probably one of the few people left alive that could look him straight in the eye and say, I knew you when. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you said you went on and worked with Hall and o- You worked with a lot of bands. You were on a lot of records. You played yeah. with uh, yeah. Yvonne Elman. You played with Joan Baez. I mean, a, a full-blown discography there of, of who you played with. But yeah. it was while you were with Hall and Oates that um, mm-hmm. you heard a voice. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now, that time, so this was on my 30th birthday in 1978. And we had played um, a show in Atlanta. We'd been on the road for six months, long tours, you know. And uh, the band and the road crew decided to throw a surprise birthday party for me in my hotel room. So, uh, you know, after the show, we went back to the hotel, and then they came crashing into my my room with this huge uh, birthday cake on this trolley. And this, this, the cake was piled high with drugs, and it was the most illegal cake you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so, you know, we partied on there, you know, and in the wee hours of the morning, like 4 o'clock in the morning after they crawled out of my room, I was just sat there in this chair just, just chilling out. And my world got interrupted by a voice I'd never heard before. And I know it's freaked some people out, but let's just be reminded that God is a God who speaks, you know, mm-hmm. beginning in Genesis. You know, so this voice calls me by my name, says to me, Caleb, from this point on, your life is going to be completely different and nothing's going to be the same for you ever again. And in that instant, I was no longer high on the drugs and everything. I was stone cold sober for the first time in a long time. And I was sat there in the midst of what I can only describe as an electric silence. And in my own limited understanding, all I knew was that I had been spoken to, but I just didn't know 
by whom. Hmm. So I sat down and made a promise to myself. I said, well, one day I'm going to find out who that voice belongs to. <laughs> so, you know, next day we pack up bags and we're out on the road, you know. And now in rock and roll, you know, you're supposed to be dead by age 30. Right. Right. So word had gone out in the industry that Caleb, Caleb Quay just turned 30. So, and I would bump into various musicians that I knew, and they would be shocked that I was still alive. Mm. So, for instance, I remember bumping into um, Queen in Chicago, O'Hare Airport. We knew those guys, and Brian May, I knew Brian May very well. Bumped into him, and he comes up to me and says, Hey, hey, man, uh, I heard that you just turned 30. Like, what happened? As if I'm supposed to, like, fall over, keel over <laughs> right there, you know. And so I told him the same story I just told you about hearing the voice, you know. And the response I got was pretty interesting. It was along the lines of, well, that's, wow, what were you smoking? That must have been great. Where can I get some? You know, <laughs> who's the dealer? You know, hook a brother up, you know. And I'm saying, no, you don't understand. This is a real, I, this is a real deal. You know, and, and that voice, Bob, it, it's like, and I always tell people, the voice of God is something, once you hear it, you cannot unhear it. You can't hide from it. You can try and hide from it, but you can't. It's, it's always going to be there. <clears throat> and so that's how it was with me. And so I got home from that tour. And from that point on, basically everything in my life that could go wrong, it went wrong. I mean, I'm talking divorce, bankruptcy. I'm selling guitars for drugs. I mean, it was a complete nightmare. You know, and then during that period of time, God sent into my life a, a musician, dear friend, musician friend who was a Christian. I'd never met one before. His name's Chester Thompson. He used to play drums for Genesis and Phil Collins. Right. Wonderful musician. And he invited me to join in this little jazz group he was putting together out here. I said, great. Yeah, I'd love to play with this guy. So he would tell me, you know, him and his wife were, were Christians, you know, and I would go, okay, that's great for you, you know. And uh, basically it was Chester <clears throat> that led me to the Lord because there was something different about him. There was something I couldn't put my finger on. And I used to say to myself, this guy and his wife, they've got something. and Whatever it is, I want it. To me, it was like they had this peace about them and what I would call a solidity. It's like their feet were on solid ground. We're the same age. We're in the same line of work. We're both professional musicians, but he's not crazy like everybody else I knew. <laughs> it was, he was just different. And I thought, whatever this guy's got, you know, I, I want it, you know. And we would do this thing. We, we'd rehearse for a gig. And he had a studio at his house. And... Um, uh, his wife would cook this great meal at the end of the day's rehearsal. And we still joke about it to this day. We call it the anointed African stew. She cooked <laughs> this meal and she'd wait for me to finish this meal. And as soon as I put my knife and fork down, she would ask me, well, Caleb, why don't you just go ahead and tell us just exactly what is it that you do believe? So I would launch off into this like 40 minute monologue of all of this new agey, weird stuff beginning somewhere with like star trek and going into astrology <laughs> and all kinds of eastern mysticism and and they were very sweet very patient they didn't open a bible they didn't preach to me they would basically wait until i ran out of gas 
And then Chester would say to me, yeah, man, I know what you mean, man. You just need Jesus. Mm. That was it. Those four words. You just need Jesus. And when he said that, inside of me, I was upset. I was mad at him. I didn't, didn't say anything to him, but I couldn't, I couldn't figure out, is that all you got? I mean, I've spent like 40 minutes trying to explain myself, and that's all you can tell me is you just need Jesus? And what made it worse was I had to go back home to my place and try and get a good night's sleep, and I wasn't sleeping at all. Mm-hmm. My eyes are wide open, and all I can hear is these four words, you just need Jesus. Now, this whole scenario repeated itself every day for a week, like the movie Groundhog Day. Like we go, go to the studio, rehearse, have the African stew, ask the question, hit the monologue, same response, go home, you just need Jesus. At the end of that week, it's Sunday morning, Easter day, 1982, 40 years ago. And uh, he calls me up and he says, what are you doing today? I said, not much. He says, why don't you come to church with us today? It's Easter. And I'm on the phone and I thought, you know what? Okay, I'll go to church with you. I've tried everything else. I'll go to church with you. So I went to the church, which was the church on the way. 1982, Easter day, 40 years ago. I sat in the church, cut a long story short, sat in the church. They start singing this worship tune called, In My Life, Lord, Be Glorified. Be glorified today. And it just kept repeating, repeating, be glorified today. And in the midst of that tune, the same voice I heard in the hotel room three and a half years previous, which I promised myself one day I'm going to find out who that voice belongs to, speaks to me in the church right there in the midst of that worship time and says, Caleb, it's time for you to come home to me today because I have a new life for you. Mm. Then the light bulb went off. Then I knew who that voice belonged to. I knew that was Jesus. What a great story. Yeah. Oh, this is true, man. Pastor Jack Hayford comes out on the platform, starts preaching his Easter message. And to me, it's like, who is this guy telling everybody my story? Because, <laughs> you know, Easter is everybody's story when you That's think right. about it. You know, even though I didn't understand a word he was saying, you know, and it was like when he, when he gave the invitation at the end, my hand went up in the air and I ran to the front. Hmm. And that's when I said yes to Jesus. Caleb Quay is ago. joining us this afternoon. 40 years ago, that's a great story. We've got to take a quick time out. When we come back, though, I want to find out, Caleb, about the movie, about the documentary, the work that's going into that. Uh, what's the status of that? Because I, I, I think we can maybe help partner in, in getting this story out, which we'd love to do. We've got to take a time out. We'll be back in just a minute as the Thursday edition of Southern California Live continues. That is Elton John from uh, Tumbleweed Connection album, Love uh, love Song. Caleb Quay is on the line with us this afternoon. Caleb played in the band with Elton for 10 years, uh, was the the one who helped produce his first single. And, and uh, Caleb, we're going to find out about the documentary that tells the story of your life and talk to Valerie uh, Tucker, who's been very patient. But before I turn to Valerie, that song has always intrigued me because it's a song that showed up on Tumbleweed Connection that Elton and Bernie did not write. 
and it has this right. kind of a, a gospel thread through it. And I keep thinking, I, again, I, at the time I'm thinking, is there something spiritual going on there? Do you have any idea why that song got picked out of all of the songs that were non Elton John, Bernie Taupin songs on the album? I think, um, well, the gal that uh, that's singing on there with him, her name is Leslie Duncan. Yeah. She's not with us anymore. But she wrote it. And um, we knew her. She was uh, a well-known um, studio singer back then. And uh, we knew her and her husband at the time, Jimmy Horowitz. And so she was just part of the creative circle of, of uh, musicians and singers in the studios in London back then. It's a b- and I think they heard the song, and it's a time, again, it was back in those days where people were singing a lot about love and everything, and the, the whole hippie thing. And also, a big influence on that song is the harmonies of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Uh-huh. Yeah, you can hear it. So that's, it, it it's beautifully it performed. It's yeah. a beautiful yeah. song. And of course, I'm I'm listening to it now with with Jesus ears on, and I'm thinking, you know, until you give right. your life, there's nothing more that you can do. And I'm thinking she may have known yeah. more than she yeah. was letting on at the time. Uh, let, yeah. let me turn oh, to yeah. Valerie Tucker. Yeah. Valerie's Val, and Valerie, sure. by the way, thank you for being so patient as Caleb and I have walked down memory lane talking about his time with Elton John. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how you no, got Valerie. connected with this whole story, and and. How you, where, where the idea came from to have Caleb's story made into a documentary? Um, well, uh, I met Caleb in 2008, and I, uh, I'm, I'm at the point where I'm like, okay, uh, I have some friends who are in town and they're playing, and this this guy who basically rented me the equipment said heard heard the band i was managing and said you need to you know uh put these guys with caleb quay and have them as an opening act and i'm like i do not know caleb quay (laughs) and he says i do so you know he set it up make a long story short he set it up and the person this is how god works the day i was supposed like two days before i was supposed to meet caleb the guy who was going to introduce us quit his job, and this job was where this whole event was taking place. And, you know, I had been introduced to the owner of the business, and so I, uh, I got a phone call saying, even though, you know, this person no longer works with us, we want you to still come to this barbecue and meet Caleb. So, you know, I get in the car, and I'm driving there, and on my way there, I decide, you know what? I'm not going to this thing. I I just, I don't want to deal with it. And I said, I'm going to turn around. Well, I wasn't paying attention, and when I went to make the left turn to turn around, I realized I was at the place to meet Caleb. So (laughs) I ended up staying, and, you know, Caleb, they said, hey, Caleb is on his way. I met Caleb, and... One day I'll have to tell you that story. It's insane. But I thought I think we were the only two sane people there, honestly. <laughs> we were definitely the two oldest people there. <laughs> and uh, we started talking, and he told me he had a band, you know, and did I want to – and I said, hey, I'll come listen to him. When you're playing next? And he happened to say, we're playing tomorrow night at a church in San Dimas. And I was like, okay, I'll be there. Now – 
this was like at six o'clock at night, and I was working for uh, Good Day LA at the time, so I had to be at work at midnight. So I got up Sunday morning, went to church, did my thing, never got a nap, went and saw Caleb, walked up to him and said, hi, remember me? And he said, yeah. And so I, uh, he handed me his book, and and I said, well, I can't stay for the second set, got to go to work, <laughs> got to go home now. So I left. Um, but I read his book, and I was like, this is interesting. He, in turn... Came, we we became friends. We started going going to breakfast, you know, having breakfast like monthly, and just talking about just talking about God and life in general. Um, because I, you know, I was a born I was born into the AME faith, right? So, so you know, um, and I have plenty of uh, you know pastors in my family because my family is very large. So, I. Uh, you know, I said, okay, fine. And then one day at breakfast, you know, Caleb asked me if I would manage his band because he had come out, the band I was managing that was in Connect, that's based in Connecticut, came out and played at Spagatini's Jazz Club in Seal Beach. So Caleb came out, heard them, and we went to breakfast a couple of days later, and he slid me a CD and said, let me know what you think of this. Hmm. Okay. So I listened to it, and... I called him up. I said, I think it's fabulous. And he says, yeah, that's my new band. How would you like to manage us? And that's how that happened. So, Valerie, you know, at first- let, me, let me jump in. I'm going to have to jump in here, Valerie, because we've got about a minute to go. And I want to make sure okay. our listeners know about the work on the film, particularly you're, you're trying to raise money to get this film to where people can see it, it can get into theaters, and can get into distribution. How can people find out more about the film and those who have a heart for this uh, help help nudge it along a little bit? Okay. We uh, have partnered up with Kappa uh, Studios to do a Christian finish with their Christian finishing fund with through the National Christian Foundation. We're trying to raise $60,000 to cover all the licensing fees. We already have a distribution deal, so basically once we get the fees, they can sell the movie and it'll be released within a 90-day period. Is there um, a website people can go to to find out more about what you're doing? Um, yes, yeah, they can go to the Kappa Impact Christian Finishing Fund. Um, what On our social media pages, we'll, we'll have a link. We have a link for it. It's 501c3, so uh, it's tax-deductible, and we have, uh, we have a website. It'll, the information will be updated to our website within the next 48 hours, I was told. And what's and the website? You can also go to our social media. Uh, the website is www.louderthanrock.com, but you can also find us on Louder Than Rock, the movie, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All right. I hope folks will check that out and find out more and get involved. Been a delight to talk to both of you this afternoon. Thanks for being on the program. And uh, I pray that the movie gets made and, and uh, has wide impact. Or It's made. I pray that it gets wide distribution. Folks get a chance to see it. Guys, thanks for being with us. we got to run back with Hour 2 of Southern California Live in just a minute. Stay tuned. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.